Good morning, Christ Community Church. Hey, thank you for your prayers. Over the last several weeks, I've been on the road. Sue and I uh, first went to England to visit my daughter, Rachel, and her family, get to see our two grandkids. And then we took 50 people to Israel. So uh, just a, a week and a half ago, we were celebrating communion, a stone's throw from where the event where Jesus was crucified. And so as we take communion today, it's, it's kind of a really meaningful experience having just been on location, so to speak. So uh, thank you for your prayers for us as we traveled. We're going to dive into God's word. Pray with me. And God, we're going to ask you right now, would you be our teacher by your Holy Spirit? Some of us come with stubborn hearts, cold hearts, hard hearts. We just, uh, we need you to open our stopped ears and to take the oil of your spirit, kind of rub it, massage it into our hearts until they become uh, soft and pliable once again. And others of us, we're just so eager to be here. We're just so grateful that you put us in a place with brothers and sisters where we can lift you up and praise and open your word. And we say, speak to us as well. Help us apply what we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Jack Nicklaus is considered by many to be the greatest golfer of all time. Uh, the, the Golden Bear, as he is known, he has won 18 major PGA tournaments, which, by the way, is four more than Tiger Woods has, has won. He's written a best-selling book on golf called Golf My Way, an instructional manual. And one of the tips that Nicholas teaches in that book is visualization. Uh, before Jack takes a single shot, he pictures in his mind, you know, his backswing, his follow-through. He can just imagine the ball landing on the green and rolling into the cup. Yes. Visualization. It's a, a technique that's practiced not just by athletes. Uh, other people use it as well. If you're a student who's got to give a history report this week, just visualize yourself standing calmly in front of the class and reading confidently from your paper. Uh, if you're a person on a diet, imagine yourself saying no to foods with lots of sugar. Imagine yourself walking, visualize yourself walking past the entrance to the donut shop and uh, walking right on by. Okay, if you're planting a garden this spring, can you visualize beds of roses and, and uh, uh, daisies and lilies and whatever springing up over the course of the summer? Visualize. Now, now, experts tell us that there's actually good science behind visualization, that when we practice, when we mentally rehearse something, it, it conditions neural pathways so that when we actually get around to doing that thing, we feel more comfortable with it and the chances of success are greater. Well, today we're going to learn how to visualize the activity of gospelizing at work. Okay, gospelizing at work. This is the fifth, the final week of a five-part series on the workplace. Uh, most of us spend 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a week uh, on our job, at our job, whether we're a dental hygienist or a realtor, whether we're uh, a middle school student, a stay-at-home mom, a carpenter, a barista, an accountant, a truck driver, whatever. And so, so for the past month, we've been learning that God has a plan for our work. God wants our work to be more than a paycheck. And so we've been looking at our jobs from the standpoint of God's word, from the, the big storyline of the Bible. The big storyline is called the gospel, the good news. 
The gospel comes to us in four acts. And so over the last four weeks, we've get, been comparing every act to a, a, a workplace environment. So act one is creation. You know, God has created work to be a good thing. It's not a penalty in life. God has created you with certain gifts and abilities and talents that he wants you to utilize in the workplace. Act two of the gospel story, God's big story, is the fall. We live in a broken, messed up world, tainted by sin. Your life is tainted by sin. And so you bring this mess into your workplace. And it impacts relationships and it impacts outcomes and projects you're working on and so on. Act three of the gospel story is redemption. If you'll surrender your life to Jesus, he will save you from your sins and begin to transform your life, which leads to act four of the gospel. That's restoration, a transforming process. God is making you more and more like Christ. And one of the venues in which that happens is your workplace. So, so the gospel is the story of how God shapes every aspect of our lives, including our jobs. But the gospel is also the basic good news about Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and how we can begin a re relationship with Jesus. And Jesus expects every one of his true followers to share this gospel, this good news, with other people. If you're a Christ follower, you have been commissioned by Jesus to be a gospelizer. Now, when I chose that word for this sermon, I thought I, was, I thought I was making up a word. I thought it was pretty cool. I just coined a new expression, and then I looked it up and found out it's in the dictionary already. So to, to gospelize means to share the good news of Christ, and one of the, the places that happens is in our workplace. And so today we're going to learn how to become good at that, like Jack Nich Nicholas at golf. Uh, we're going to learn how to visualize how to visualize four aspects of gospelizing. If you haven't taken your, your, your program out yet and begun to fill in the blanks, please do that. Follow along so that you take away something you can apply to your life. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Four aspects of gospelizing. Number one, visualize the opportunity. Okay, visualize the opportunity. Now, I want to give you some background to 1 Corinthians 9 before we take a look at it, some capital C context. Uh, we, we, we follow a four-part Bible study approach, COMA, C-O-M-A, C stands for context. So let me give you the historical background for 1 Corinthians 9. Paul has written this New Testament epistle, this letter, to a group of Christ followers in the bustling city of Corinth. It's a city he visited some time before. He shared the good news. He gospelized with the, the, the local folks, talked to them about Jesus. Many of them surrendered their lives to Christ. Paul formed them into a church, launched a church movement there in Corinth. And now he's writing a letter of instruction to encourage them in their faith. And when we get to chapter 9, Paul addresses a... Uh, a somewhat touchy issue. Paul's going to talk to them about the fact that he deserves to be paid for his work among them. He deserves to be paid for the ministry that he's had in Corinth. Now, we, we pick it up at verse 11. So if you're open to 1 Corinthians 9, look at verse 11. Paul says, hey, if we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If, we, if we've been working among you spiritually, shouldn't you be paying us for our work? 
Now, now, before you jump to the conclusion, oh my goodness, so Paul's just another one of those money-grubbing, traveling evangelists, I, I want to point out Paul was not in it for the money. In fact, Paul wanted to offer the gospel to the Corinthians, we're going to see in a little bit, he wanted to offer it for free. But he knew that the Corinthians think like a lot of us think, and that is, you get what you pay for, right? Don't we have that attitude? And so, if something is offered for free, then it must be worthless. So if he's going to give us the gospel for free, it can't be that important. And Paul wants to make the point, oh my goodness, no, this is, this is the most valuable commodity in the world, the gospel. So he's going to make a case here that he deserves, before he tells them he's going to offer the gospel for free, he first has to make the case that he deserves to be paid for it. Okay, so he offers four arguments in the first half of 1 Corinthians 9. And it's not important if you're taking notes that you write these down. I, I just want to show you how Paul makes a pretty strong case that he deserves some remuneration. So his first argument, you'll see it in verse 7, is that everybody, everybody else gets paid for the work they do. Verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? You follow Paul's argument here? He says, hey, if soldiers and farmers and shepherds get paid for their work, why shouldn't I? Second argument, verse 9. The argument is that fair pay for hard work is a biblical principle. For verse 9, he says, for it is written in the law of Moses... He's about to quote from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. In other words, if your ox is working for you, then let it eat as much as it wants, okay? Let it be remunerated for its labors. Third argument. Drop down to verse 13. It's the argument that, hey, look around. Other religious professionals are getting paid for their work. He cites the priests, the Jewish priests who work in the temple, and they get paid. And Paul says, hey, if they get paid, why shouldn't I get paid? Fourth argument, verse 14. He says, the Lord, Jesus taught that ministers ought to be paid for their work. Uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he sent his disciples out from town to town sharing the good news. And he said, hey, don't bother to take any food or extra clothes with you because the people you stay, stay with will meet your needs. Okay, that's their job. So Paul spends the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 9 making a formidable case that he deserves to be paid. And then he throws the case out. He kicks it to the curb. He says, but I don't want your money. I don't want your money. Look, look again at verse 12. He says, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But... But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So why did Paul refuse pay from the Corinthians? Because he didn't want money to get in the way of his gospelizing. You know, Paul was afraid that if unbelievers heard that he was getting pay, paid for his work, he would, uh, they would dismiss him as another tele-evangelist type, just a greedy guy. Spiritually lost people would be resistant to the good news about Jesus. They'd say, well, Paul's just doing it for the money. So, so Paul didn't want that to happen, so his services had been offered to the Corinthians free of charge. 
Now, of course, that put Paul in a bit of a bind. He's offering his services free of charge, but like the rest of us, he had to eat. Okay, Paul had to make a living, so how could Paul pay his bills? Well, if you know anything about Paul, you know that Paul on the side, he was a tent maker. He was a professional tent maker. Acts 18, verse 3, we read that when Paul was in Corinth, he worked as a tent maker alongside of two other Christian leaders, a husband-wife duo named Aquila and Priscilla, who were also tent makers. And historians tell us that back in the first century, a tent maker you know, did more than just supply uh, camping tools for REI. All right, tent, tent makers r- repaired sails for the big ships that sailed on the Mediterranean. Uh, tent makers made awnings for all those shops. Every village, every city had a marketplace, and the tent makers made the awnings for those shops. Uh, tent makers worked in leather. They made everything from saddles to sandals. So uh, interestingly, Paul was a tent maker, and it probably mortified the Corinthians. Because here's their spiritual leader, here's their top guru, and he's working on the side doing manual labor. I mean, it'd kind of be like if you found out that I, as the senior pastor of the church, Sue and I, based on what we get paid here, we can't quite pay the bills, so we're selling vacuum cleaners door to door and mowing lawns. You know, some of you would be embarrassed about that. Oh, not our pastor. So this is why Paul took so much time in the first half of 1 Corinthians 9 to make the point that, yes, I shouldn't have to be a tent maker. Yes, I deserve to be paid for my spiritual work. You're right. However, that's a right I choose not to exercise because I don't want anything to undermine my gospelizing. I I don't want anybody to be turned off to the good news about Jesus because they think I'm in it just for the money. Now, you say, this is all interesting historical context, historical background, but what does it mean for me? Here's the principle I want you to take away from this. Okay, Paul worked a secular job in order that he'd have opportunity to share the good news about Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Most of you work a secular job, and guess what, friends? It gives you an opportunity to freely share the good news about Jesus. You work a secular job that gives you the opportunity to freely share the good news about Jesus. People come to me all the time and they say, oh, it must be nice to be a pastor. I mean, you get, you get paid vocationally. You get to share Jesus with people all day long. But what I, I got to sell insurance or I got to teach third grade students or I got to change poopy diapers or study for algebra tests or build houses or this. Or I, I don't get to do what you do. And I want to say, are you kidding me? I hang out with Christ followers most of the day. Okay, you have the opportunity to rub shoulders every day with spiritually lost people who need the good news of Christ. You work a secular job that gives you the opportunity to have conversations about Jesus. Visualize your job as an opportunity. Visualize it as an opportunity to share Christ. And even if you work a job like mine, you you work for a Christian organization, or you're a student who goes to a private Christian school, or you're a stay-at-home mom and you're hanging out with your, your little family of Christ followers every day, there are encounters you have with baristas and bus drivers and sales clerks and vendors and whatnot that give you the opportunity to talk about Jesus. You get it? Good. Visualize the opportunity. 
Number two, visualize the stakes. Visualize the stakes. Uh, Eric Hagerman doesn't want to hear any news. He doesn't want to hear national news, doesn't want to hear world news. Ever since Donald Trump became president, Eric Hagerman has turned off to the news, doesn't want to know anything. Now, he's not a hermit by nature. In fact, he, he recently quit a job where he was the director of digital commerce for, for Nike. And before that, he did the same job uh, for Walmart. And before that, he did the same job for Walt Disney. But when Donald Trump was elected president, uh, Hagerman said, okay, that's enough for me. He bought a pig farm in southeastern Ohio, and he has screened out all news. Okay, so even when he goes into the local town to his favorite coffee shop, uh, he sits in a corner far away from any newspapers, and in order not to, to overhear any discussion about the news, he wears white noise headphones. He wants to know nothing about what's going on in the world. So he knows nothing about James Comey. He doesn't know about the Russian meddling in American politics. He doesn't know about the Me Too campaign. He, does, he doesn't know squat about the news. And he's happy to keep it that way. He doesn't want to hear bad news. Bad news. Now you think, well, that's kind of weird. That's pretty crazy. But it's what a lot of us Christ followers do with respect to the bad news that's associated with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there's ba the, the bad news is every one of us is sinful and separated from a holy God. And because we've broken away from the God who is the giver of life, the source of life, the consequence is death. We're spiritually dead. We're destined for an eternity apart from God unless something gets fixed. Jesus was sent to this earth. The good news is God sent his son Jesus to take the penalty we deserve to pay. He took death when he died on the cross. And raised from the dead, he now offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who put their hope and trust in him. That's the good news. But the bad news is, is a lot of people reject the good news. The bad news is a lot of the people you work with every day are saying no to Jesus. And as a result, one day they will stand before Almighty God as their judge. See, we all get judged for our sins, and either someone stands in our place and takes our punishment, takes our hit, which is what Jesus has done for those of us who've surrendered to him, or we pay sin's penalty ourselves. And you've got friends at work, people you work with every day, who are destined to pay for their own sins, and that's bad news. We like to tune it out. We, we don't like to live with that reality. We, we don't want to visualize the stakes. But not so, not so the Apostle Paul. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, drop down to verse 16. Paul says, for when I preach the gospel, I'm going to stop right there in the middle of the sentence. I want you to circle the word preach. I want to remind you, I've told you before, that the word preach in the New Testament doesn't mean simply what pastors do with an open Bible in church on the weekends. Okay, the word preach, by definition, simply means to announce the good news. Announce the good news, and it's what Christ has commissioned every one of his followers to do. If you're a Christ follower, he's commissioned you to be a gospelizer, to preach the gospel, so to speak. 
So Paul continues, verse 16, for when I preach the gospel, when I gospelize, I can't boast since I'm compelled to preach. In fact, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't gospelize. This is Paul visualizing the stakes. And there are at least two dreadful scenarios that Paul wants to avoid at all costs. There are are two negative stakes that motivated Paul to share the good news while working as a tent maker, while working his secular job. Dreadful scenario number one was the prospect of facing Christ one day, having neglected to gospelize. Facing Christ one day, having neglected to gospelize. Paul couldn't imagine, he couldn't visualize himself looking Jesus in the eye and trying to explain why he had failed to share the good news with people around him. That was a scary thought for Paul. Woe to me if I don't gospelize. For several years after college, I had this recurring dream, kind of a recurring nightmare. And my guess is some of you who went to school, uh, uh, post high school, you, you had this dream as well. Uh, I dreamed that I had signed up for a course, and it was a course I needed for graduation, but then I never attended class. You ever have this dream? So every day I told myself I ought to go to class, I ought to go, no, but I found something else to do, and I never went to class. And so the end of the quarter is coming. It's my last semester at school. Without this class, I can't graduate. I haven't gone to class. I haven't done a single homework assignment. I haven't taken a test. And the final day, I walk in, and I face the teacher who hands me the final exam. You have this dream? I guess most of you don't. All right. (laughs) Well, Paul, Paul had a similar dream. He he visualized the day when he'd have to give give an account of his life to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul wrote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, he's writing this to believers. He's not just talking about spiritually lost people. He says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. See, Paul couldn't bear the thought of reporting to King Jesus that he had failed to complete life's most important assignment, that he had neglected to gospelize. Listen, friends, Jesus has called every one of us, every one of his followers, to gospelize. What if we go to our workplace day after day after day after day, and we just never get around to this top priority? We never have a conversation about Jesus. When people share personal needs with us, we never think to say, hey, you know what, I'm a prayer. Can I take like 30 seconds just to ask God's intervention in your life? We never do that. We never invite anybody to something going on at church saying, hey, come with me to church. It's made a huge difference in my life. So we're really good at what we do. We're good at our earthly vocation. We're people of integrity in the work that we do but we're missing out on our heavenly mission. What happens when we face Jesus and give an account of our lack of gospelizing? Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Dreadful scenario number two is knowing spiritually lost people who stayed lost because I didn't gospelize them. 
You know, Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel because he knew that any dereliction of duty on his part would result in people being lost for eternity. They would experience death, which is the judgment upon their sin because no one, no one has ever said to them that Jesus took their punishment on the cross and that Jesus offers them forgiveness and life if they'll surrender to him. No one's told them that. There, there, there's an Old Testament story that illustrates this point. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 7. You could read it for yourself sometime. True story. Happened in ancient Israel about 750 B.C. The northern capital of Israel, a city called Samaria, was under siege. The enemy army, the Arameans, had Samaria surrounded. They were strangling the city. They, they hadn't breached the walls yet, hadn't broken through, but they were systematically starving the city to death. Well, there were four beggars who lived in the city, and they woke up one day and said, hey, enough of this. Let's defect to the Arameans. What's the worst that could happen? They could kill us. But we're dying slowly here in Samaria. And chances are they might, they might welcome us as POWs and give us something to eat. So these four beggars slipped out the city walls and they went over to the Aramean camp. And to their surprise, they found nobody was home. All the tents were empty. And that's because God had heard the prayers of the Israelites in the city of Samaria for deliverance, and God had sent the sound of approaching chariots, thousands of chariots, the sound. The Arameans heard this, and they thought that the Israelites had hired mercenaries to attack them. And so they ran for their lives, and they left behind food and clothes and uh, donkeys, animals, and all sorts of booty. And so uh, the four Beggars went from tent to tent, gorging themselves and collecting treasures in bags until one of them had a, a scary thought. One of them thought of all those people still starving back in Samaria. And so he turned to his buddies and he said, this is 2 Kings 7 verse 9, he says, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. Visualize a similar scene at the place where you work. Okay, visualize this. Or at the school, the school you attend. Or in the circle of, of moms, stay-at-home moms that you gather with at the playground several times a week with your kids. You're, you're surrounded by, by people who are spiritually dying dead. And yet you've discovered the good news of life in Christ. Are you keeping it to yourself? Paul says, woe to us if we don't gospelize. Visualize the stakes. One day we'll face King Jesus and give an account as to whether or not we carried out his mission. And there will be people who were a regular part of our life. Will they be able to look at us and say, but you never told, you never said anything about this. Number three, visualize. Visualize the common ground. Visualize the common ground. Go back to the text. Let me read a chunk of it to you, beginning at verse 19. This, by the way, is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I could say it's one of the key texts that motivated Sue and me to launch Christ Community Church several decades ago. Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. 
To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, not having God's word, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those who don't have the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And we haven't taken the time to thank God for his word yet. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul wanted to win, wanted to win as many people to Christ as he possibly could. So so in order to stir up, to open up conversations about Jesus, Paul would look for common ground with people he encountered every day. So if if they were Jewish, Paul would emphasize his Jewishness. If they were irreligious, if they were totally secular, he wouldn't talk about God's law, about the Bible. He wouldn't Bible bang. He would talk to them on secular terms. Okay, If, if they were weak, And the word weak here in this text probably means people who were poor or people who were sick or people who were marginalized by the society. They were at the lowest rung of the ladder, socially speaking. If they were poor, he would uh, empathize with their weakness. So Paul was constantly on the lookout for common ground with people in order to open up conversations that might lead to Jesus. Uh, Some of you may be wondering, as I read that, so was Paul kind of like a chameleon, always changing colors? You know, was he pretending to be something he was not? This sounds a bit phony to me. But Paul was actually very sincere in his efforts to become like other people in order to win them to Christ. And Paul had a good role model in this regard. His role model was Jesus himself. Remember, if you would, that Jesus became one of us in order to save us. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says that because those he wanted to save are of flesh and blood, Jesus shared in our humanity so that he could break the one who holds the power of death over us. So Paul was just following in Jesus' footsteps. He he constantly visualized any common ground he might have with spiritually lost people so, so that conversation starters might lead to sharing the good news. And, and this wasn't something that Paul, that Paul just did casually. And so, sometimes Paul had to pay a steep price in order to find common ground with others. For example, verse 20, he says, I became like a Jew in order to win Jews. And you read that and you say, well, no big deal. Paul was Jewish, right? That was his background. So when he was hanging out with Jewish people, he just turned up the heat under his Jewishness a little bit, right? The Bible scholars say, oh, no, Paul paid a much steeper price than that in order to relate the good news about Jesus to Jews. You see, in Jewish culture of the day, according to the Mishnah, one of the Jewish holy books, you would get kicked out of society. You would be banned from any social interaction with with Jews if if you sinned in a, a certain way. And at the top of the list of the sins was blasphemy. So if you were guilty, if you were a Jew guilty of blasphemy, you were kicked out of the culture, out of the society. No interaction with fellow Jews. Now, there was only one way you could get back in good, and that was if you were willing to endure a purging. And the purging was a whipping. It was 40 lashes. The Apostle Paul, a Jew, had committed blasphemy. 
He dared to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He was banned from Jewish culture. There was no, no connection with fellow Jews unless Paul would undergo a purging. And according to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24, Paul tells us that he went through the 40 lashes experience five times at the hands of the Jews. Why? So he'd have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Friends, none of us is ever going to have to pay that steep a price for finding common ground with our friends who don't know Christ. But, but what is the price we're willing to pay? How much effort are we willing to invest in finding common ground with the people we work with every day? You say, well, yeah, how do you do that? Let me suggest a couple of strategies, and there are probably many more, but this is just to get the juices going, okay? Uh, first strategy, ask good questions. Okay, learn how to ask Good questions. How well do you know the people you work with? Do, do you know the names of their kids? You know, do they have pets? What are their talents that get utilized outside the workplace? Okay, what do they do for hobbies? Where, where are they going on vacation this summer? What, what are their hopes and dreams, their personal aspirations? You, you find this stuff out by asking good questions. Now, Sue and I, because we don't work in a secular environment, you know, our interaction with, uh, with people who are not yet Christ followers takes place mainly at the gym or in our neighborhood. And so as I've described to you in the past several times a year, we go through our neighborhood pulling our little wagon behind us collecting canned goods for the local food pantry. And this gives us an opportunity to stop at every door, 26 homes on our two-block stretch, and uh, meet and greet people and talk to them, and we ask them a lot of questions. We ask a lot of questions. And, and when I get back to my little red wagon, I quickly write down everything I heard them say, and when I get back to my home, I go on my laptop and I, I put it on an electronic file, and some of you are thinking, I am stalking my neighbors. <laughs> I, I just don't want to forget what they told me. You know, they told me their daughter's getting married next month, or they, they told me their, you know, their uncle Bob is in the hospital for cancer, or they told me about a trip that's coming up to the, the vineyards of Italy, or they told me about a remodeling project or a new puppy in the house, and next time I see them, I want to remember what they told me. See, if you want common ground with the people you work with, you've got to ask good questions. Here's a second strategy. Show an interest in what other people are interested in. Show an interest in what other people are interested in. Now, true confession. I am not as avid a Cubs fan as I sometimes make myself out to be. Okay, now I grew up, I grew up loving the Cubs, but the, the fact of the matter is we're like, what, a month and a half into the, the new season, and I have yet to, to watch a single inning of baseball. Okay, now it's partly because I've been out of the country for, you know, for the last several weeks. But, but the truth of the matter is, is you know, I, I don't have as avid an interest as I sometimes convey to you or as signaled by the fact that I wear a Cubs ball cap all the time. If you see pictures of me in Israel, you'll see me with my Cubs cap on. I wear Cubs t-shirts. I go online to find out who won the game I didn't watch. Uh, if, you, if you've got tickets to Wrigley, I will gladly take them off your hands and go watch a, go watch a Cubs game. But, but what am I doing? I'm trying to find common ground with something that a lot of people are interested in, the Cubs. The Cubs. 
In fact, I've found when I'm wearing my ball cap, I could be just about anywhere in the world. Last summer, I was hiking in the Tetons with my Cubs cap, and it started conversations with fellow Cubs Cubs fans I ran across while hiking. So look for common interests. So the people at work, the guy in the cubicle next to you, his daughter's in ballet. Are you interested in ballet? You say, no. Get interested. You know, I can't tell you a tutu from a whatever. But if somebody you work with is interested in ballet, you get interested in ballet. If they're interested in sailing, then you find out, so what kind of a boat do you sail and How did you learn to do this? And what kinds of places, what's your favorite place to sail to? If they're interested in gardening, it doesn't matter if you know squat about roses or radishes or whatever. You show an interest in in gardening. See, because the the thought is that if you show an interest in what others are interested in, sooner or later it'll come back to you and you'll have the opportunity to talk about your most important interest, Jesus Christ. See how that works? Visualize yourself going to work this week and looking for common ground, asking good questions, showing interest in what others are interested in. Number four, visualize the win. Visualize the win. Go back to 1 Corinthians 9 one last time. I want you to take a look again at the paragraph I read to you a few moments ago, verses 19 to 23. And one of the Bible study tips that I've taught you is when you want to know the main topic of any passage you're reading, look for repeating words or ideas. Well, there is a word that pops up five times in these few verses. Here, it's the word win. So if you've got your own Bible, circle the word win five times in verses 19 to 23. It's a word that was used in business in the first century. It's a word that, that meant to profit, to gain financially. So Paul's talking about a win as he gospelizes. What's the win? Well, he's already told us it's got nothing to do with money. He could care less about the money side of things. What's the win? The win is to win as many people as possible to Jesus Christ. Paul says, oh my goodness, nothing in my tent making, nothing compares. No bonus, no big sale, no, nothing compares to the win of seeing somebody come to faith in Christ. Now, you visualize that with the people you work with. You you visualize someone you know who works alongside of you every day surrendering their life to Christ. Can Can you picture that in your mind? Can you visualize how it would transform their character, how it would transform their relationships, how it would transform their priorities, how it would how it would transform their eternal destiny? Can you picture that? Now, if you've never led anybody to Christ, you should talk to someone who has because what they will tell you is there there is no greater rush in the Christian life than being used by God to point someone else into a relationship with Jesus. Now, now maybe, maybe this is too big a stretch for your imagination to visualize someone surrendering their lives to Christ, actually praying the sinner's prayer, Jesus, I give my life to you. So I want to challenge you to visualize something smaller, okay, to visualize something that perhaps you think is more attainable. Visualize a smaller win, if you would. Uh, I'm currently reading a, a book by Greg Kokel. 
Uh, Greg is a best-selling author. He's a, a well-known Christian apologist. He is a, a guy who runs a radio show, nationally syndicated radio show called Stand to Reason. In fact, we're bringing Greg in. He's been a Christ community in the past. We're bringing him back next month for a series, a weekend series we're doing uh, to speak on one of those weekends. Uh, his book is called Tactics. It's all about how to encounter others uh, in, a, in a conversation about Jesus, how to engage others in conversation about Jesus. I'd highly recommend it. But one of the things Greg teaches in his book is he says, don't think in terms of every conversation leading all the way to the cross. Okay, think in smaller terms. Okay, every conversation you have with somebody at work doesn't have to be a gospel touchdown. Okay, just, just think of moving the ball down the field a few yards in every conversation. So visualize something smaller, a smaller win. Can, can, can you visualize yourself this week actually opening your mouth and saying something about God? Can you visualize that? But just dropping God into a casual conversation. Can, can, can you visualize yourself, someone has just shared a need with you at school, at work, uh, again with fellow moms as you're watching your kids play on the playground, and can you visualize yourself looking at them and saying, hey, I love to pray, can I pray for you right now, 30 seconds, and just bring this need before God? Can, can you visualize yourself, okay, just a smaller win here, can you visualize yourself inviting someone to come with you to church, maybe next weekend, which is Mother's Day weekend, which is the third best attended weekend in churches around the country every year. You got Christmas Eve, you got Easter, and you got Mother's Day. Why? Because all those guys out there who don't want to go to church, but because it's Mother's Day, they'll go. And you use that to your advantage this week, and you say, hey, bro, how about taking your wife to church? Come with me. Can you visualize yourself inviting someone to our next inspiring stories at the end of June, these weekends that we do three times a year? We bring in an outside guest who's got a story, an amazing story to tell. Visualize a smaller win, if you would. What if we showed up at our workplaces this week, hundreds, thousands of us from Christ Community Church, with these sorts of wins in mind? What if our most important win at work this week had something to do with gospelizing? I'd like to, to close in a word of prayer, and then we're going to do communion. But as I, as I pray for you, I want you to visualize the things we've talked about in today's sermon as we've looked at 1 Corinthians 9. Pray with me. Uh, God, would you help us visualize the opportunity that work presents to every one of us. We are in a setting where there are people who know Jesus and we have the opportunity for conversations. Help us visualize that right now. Help us to visualize what's at stake, the stakes, that one day we're going to stand before you and give an account of whether or not we gospelized like you, you commissioned us to do. One day we're going to stand and realize that we had friends and loved ones and people we work with who didn't hear the good news. Help us to visualize the common ground right now, God. Give, give us a person or two in mind that we're, we're going to find out more about at work this week. We're going to show a greater interest in their interests. Give us the ability to visualize the win. Help us to picture your spirit actually at work in somebody else's life so that they're positively responsive to our efforts 
to lead them to Jesus. And now, God, as we realize what you've done for us, as we visualize the cross, as we hold the bread and the cup in our hands for communion, help us to recall the tremendous price that Christ paid to become one of us, to gospelize us. May we desire to follow in his footsteps in Jesus' name. Amen.